0: Father God, it was an amazing week watching you work your wonders with the kids, showing off for them, showing them what a great God you are. Can't thank you enough for the people you sent to work through. We all grew up as they grew up. I'd like to do a little more of that this morning as we look into the Word together. You are an amazing, wonderful God in control of everything. We surrender to you through Christ amen. Yeah, it was a great week. Um, and I've, uh, most of you know, I've been kind of doing some reading through the Old Testament. I was in again last week and I'm reading the book of Daniel last week and it's an amazing book. And, and one of the major themes of Daniel is God is in control. We've been watching that all week in VBS. And, and that's good to know these days because sometimes if you're like me, it doesn't seem like he is. You know, all the stuff going on and sometimes we get in dark areas in our life and And uh, we get in chaotic moments, and it doesn't appear like God's really in charge, but He is. He's not gone to sleep at the wheel, and God is in control, and that's the major theme of the book of Daniel. It's pretty good stuff. I love what Anne Lamont said years ago. She said, the biggest difference between you and God is God never thinks He's you. And and that's pretty cool stuff. So what we need to be reminded from the book of Daniel is that God is in control, and that's challenging for us these days. It really is, because all the stuff going on. Uh, it's also must have been challenging for Daniel back then. I mean, this is a guy that had been kidnapped from his home nation, deported, uh, has become a slave, and, and you've got to know he's had some nights where he's wondering, where's God in all of this stuff, and, uh, and, and is he ever going to show up? Also, this is a story about Nebuchadnezzar. He's a, uh, one of the most powerful kings ever in history. Um, he didn't have any room for God at all in his life, unlike Daniel. In fact, Scott Scroggins wrote a piece on this thing uh, called Only God is God, and this is about eight years ago, and I want to share this with you. This is amazing. He says, Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful king, a quiet, quiet, brutal military dictator, but all that aside, he said, let's not pretend that he didn't have a life and a lifestyle that most of us would envy. Nebuchadnezzar is the CEO, a successful entrepreneur, an elite statesman of his day, he drives a six-figure car, wears a hand-tailored suit, lives in a Hollywood mansion, ming- mingles with celebrities. He's followed after by paparazzi. He's on the cover of Time, People, and Inside Babylon. Women want to be with him. Men just want to be him. And He's the man of the day. And you follow through this story, and that's the truth. But, but I'm thinking, if we were honest this morning... As we thrum through stories like this, and you guys listen to me preach on Sunday morning, and we come across a character like Daniel, it's easy for us to applaud him because he's got so much courage and he did what God told him to do. But if we were honest, I mean brutally honest, it's really Nebuchadnezzar and his lifestyle that you and I are chasing Monday through Friday. Am I right? It's trying to control things and come up with more money and trying to be powerful and successful and have a lot of status that you and I are really chasing, if we were brutally honest. I'd like to read this with you this morning, walk through a few things, and then get honest at the altar this morning and maybe see some changes happening. We're going to start in Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. We're just going to read a little bit and then find some lessons. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he couldn't sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. And the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. They said, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was first and then interpret it, I'm going to have you cut into pieces and turn your houses into piles of rubble. Wow. Tell me the dream first and then interpret it. By the way, I've always thought that was a really funny phrase. I'm going to cut you to pieces and then turn your house to rubble. I mean, personally, after you've cut me to pieces, I don't care much what you've done to my house. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, you're going to cut me to pieces? No, no, no. You know, but please, please don't turn my house to rubble. Anyway, verse 6. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, he says, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. That's kind of feast or famine for these guys at this point. And if you read the next three verses, they try to stall for time. It doesn't work out good. We'll pick up in verse 10. The astrologers answered the king. There's not a person on earth can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any of his magicians or enchanters or astrologers. What the king asks is much too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among human beings. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So another dark day for Daniel, and we're only in chapter 2. He's, been, he's worked through the whole deportation thing and through the whole thing. If you remember chapter 1, the royal food and the royal wine, and he did so well with that, he got promoted to uh, spiritual advisor to the king, which seems like a good thing until he just got this memo that the spiritual advisor committee is going through some major cutbacks. Major cutbacks, like their hands and their arms and their legs and that kind of thing. So it's a bad time for Daniel. Pick up in verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel asked to speak to him with wisdom and tact. That's always a good thing, by the way. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Meshiah, and Azariah, a.k.a. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. I guess so. Look, we're not even two chapters in the book of Daniel until all this exciting thing has happened. So if it's been a while since you've read that book, it's also full of end-time prophecies. You need to go back and read some of this stuff. Being back in the Old Testament is a lot of fun. But if you remember the story, he goes on and interprets the king's dream. The king not only rescinds his execution order, but he starts to praise the God of Daniel. So lots of ups and downs in that chapter and lots of lessons. We're going to look at three, and here's the first one. Nobody can control their own future. That's lesson number one, nobody. Now, this is certainly true for God's servant Daniel, but it's also true for this Nebuchadnezzar. I think it's interesting the most powerful and successful man in Babylon, really, in the, in the whole world at that time, was so upset by something that he couldn't sleep. That's strange to me. It normally takes something pretty big to keep me up all night, you know what I mean? Uh, something that's stirring up my heart like that, something that I can't control. And it's the same thing for Nebuchadnezzar. It's not that he's got a bad back. It's not that he's got a lumpy mattress. He's having something going on that's keeping him stirred up, And the Bible says he can't sleep. He's having troublesome dreams. Not just dreams, troublesome dreams. Now, this is a big deal back then because it was actually believed in this day that the gods spoke to the kings through dreams. By the way, do you, you know the Bible says in the last days our men will see visions and dream dreams? I think that's interesting to me. We're in the last days. We have been since the resurrection. I don't know how many last days we've got left, but that's always been kind of interesting to me. It's never worked for me. The only thing I've dreamed about is donuts and dogs and ice cream and stuff. But anyway, it's very interesting. Anyway, it's very important for Nebuchadnezzar that he finds out what this dream is because it's so significant, even if he doesn't like what it says. And so he pushes and pushes. So why make such a big deal out of this? I'm making a big deal out of it to show you that this is the one thing that even Nebuchadnezzar can't control. He's waking up to the fact that even though he's the most powerful man on the planet, he cannot control his future. And, and that fact is in every one of our lives, that same line gets drawn. You know what I'm talking about? We've got this line in our life, and on this side of the line are the things we can control, and on this side of the line are things we can't control, like our health, like the future, like what's going to happen with our family, like where's the stock market's going and what's going to happen with Iran, and on and on and on. All these things we can't control, and, and lo- like our future. And so we have this line and we spend most of our waking hours, whether we want to admit this or not, trying to move everything we can to the control side of the line. That's what keeps us up at night. That's what motivates us. We want to move things over to here so we can control them. And we try all kinds of things to get that done. We talk about them every week in the pulpit. We try money. Somehow we think money, if we have more money, we control more things. It looks that way, but it doesn't work. When I was about, I don't know, about 20 years old, a friend of mine and I were working at uh, Sears at Lafayette Square in the tool department, and this company came to recruit us. And they said, we're up and coming, man. We are, we're exploding. In fact, things are going so quickly that our uh, division managers and a couple of our CEOs are in their late 20s and early 30s. And you need to get in on this company at the ground floor because we're going places. Well, we talked it over and thought about it, and we didn't really like what they did, and we weren't really, expo- we weren't really convinced they were going to explode, and so we said no. The company was, was Wendy's Hamburgers, <laughs> and, and they have done pretty good. And, and, you know, I thought through the years uh, several times, what might have happened had I made a different decision then? I, I mean, I might have made a lot of money. I don't know. I could have shared it with you. So maybe I let us both down. I don't know. But here's the truth. Even if I had made a lot of money and maybe even become a CEO, even at this point in my life if I'd been eating a lot of hamburgers, I still couldn't have moved anything over the line into things I control. Money looks like it will do that, but it's a lie. It won't work. Another thing we do sometimes to try to control things is image and our appearance. And our status, we think sometimes if we think we've got things under control and we act like we've got things under control, maybe we do have things under control. It's our image. That's why we say image is everything. And yet here's Nebuchadnezzar. As all the image he could ever want and then some, he still wakes up in the middle of the night when nobody's around and realizes that all the status he has can't move that line at all. All of his image can't do one thing to move things on the control side. He won't us either. And we try other things besides money and status. We try manipulation. If we can just do something to manipulate the situation, maybe lie a little bit or fudge the truth a little bit, if we can manipulate people a little bit, we can get our own way. But that doesn't work either. And so here we are in this story several thousand years ago, and and, and here's this powerful man on the planet, uh, and he finally realizes this, and so he can't sleep. And, and you've got to wonder at this point, uh, why didn't he just take something? You know, Ambien or Time PM or Sleep Easy or something. Bobby Cardwell said for years, all you've got to do is get one of Cain's uh, CDs from one of his sermons. It'll put you right out. You know, why didn't he take something? Because that's what we do, right, when we can't sleep. Here, here's a point we need to see this morning. Uh, even though th- th- there's a lot of things that we can't control, that doesn't mean we're helpless. Not at all. And even though there's a lot of things that are out of control, doesn't mean we don't have some decisions to make, some choices to make. Nebuchadnezzar had some choices to make. He could have made some wise decisions and changed things, but he didn't. He just got mad and took care of himself, which leads to number two. Second lesson is there are some things in life we can change. And maybe what really needs to change is the one thing we can control, and that's ourselves. Maybe the one thing in our life that needs to be different right now in that situation or in that relationship or whatever, maybe maybe it's you. See, sometimes we get so busy trying to get things on the control side of things that we forget about the one thing that's right in front of us that we can control, me. Maybe I need to change my attitude. Maybe I need to change my actions. Maybe I need to make some different choices some different career moves. Maybe it's me. I mean, look how this worked for Nebuchadnezzar. It appears like he made some wise decisions. He brought in some advisors and asked them for help, but it was still all about me, me, me. He said, interpret my dream. And when they couldn't, whose fault was it? It was their fault. And and so what he's doing here is he's seeking counsel without giving up any control at all. He's asking for help without admitting that he really needs help. He's refusing to be humble and make any changes at all. It's all somebody else's fault. He's not going to work on me. There, there's a fairly new area of psychology uh, in this study area. It's called behavioral economics. And one of the top researchers out there right now in this area is a guy by the name of Daniel Kahneman. And Kahneman says this: I love this. He says, people don't always make rise, rational choices when it comes to the use of their finances. Hello. Our country's $20 trillion in debt. And he says uh, that he calls, he, he says this comes from something he calls, I love this, the, the illusion of validity. And this is how this works. I quote, people have a huge amount of confidence in their own judgment, even in the face of the evidence that their judgment is wrong. Say that again, Kane. Okay. People have a huge amount of confidence in their own judgment, even in the face of the evidence that their own judgment is wrong. I'm telling you, you read some of this research, and you come to know pretty quickly that they've wasted a lot of money paying a lot of people, some Nobel Prize people money, to research something that I could have told them straight up, people make dumb choices. In fact, all they had to do was follow me around a few days, and I could have shown them this for nothing. I'll tell you something else you read. Uh, realize when you when you see this research on paper, and that is this: you and I can pick out bad choices ever people ever people make really quickly. You make a dumb choice, and I'm all over it, man. I can see that very quickly. But it's a little harder to see my dumb choices. I'm kind of blind to that. You know, when it's my wisdom and my bad choices and my bad decisions, I'm not so good at seeing that. So that's because most of the time, I just assume I know best. And old Jimmy, I ought to take care of old Jimmy because old Jimmy's normally right. You know what I mean? If I'm not careful, I come just like Nebuchadnezzar. And when I start asking for advice, what I'm really asking for is some compassion and some encouragement and some validity and maybe even a hug. What I'm not asking for, if I'm being honest now, is for somebody to look me in the face and lovingly say, you're wrong this time. You're wrong this time. It's you. You know, we've joked for years that we don't fight at the Kane House. We don't have time. We're always on the floor doing devotions and singing praise hymns and stuff, okay? And, of course, that's a joke. We do fight at our house. But I'm telling you, we don't fight much. We really haven't. But we have had some fights, and some have been some humdingers, I'm telling you. And several years ago, Craig Jackson was still here, and we had a humdinger. And I came into work Monday morning, and I was still lit up, man, and I I was just tying into everybody. I was was complaining about how Ashley had reacted, and Andrea, and Amy, and you, and even one of the dogs, man. I was mad at everybody. And Craig listened to me because him and I were very close. And then finally, he interrupted me, and he said, Jimmy, I got to tell you something. The one common denominator in all these stories is you. Maybe you ought to start back over, tell these stories, and this time talk about you. And I said, shut your fat face, you're fired. No, I I didn't say that, but I felt like saying it. I got very defensive because, see, now we're talking about me. I was real comfortable when I was talking about them and all their problems because it's always other people's problems, right? It's not mine. But Craig was right. This time it was me. Now listen to me very carefully, family, because I love you like nobody's business, and you know that by now. I'm telling you as honestly as I know how, sometimes it's you sometimes it just is that problem you're having at work it might not be the boss it might not be the company's going in the wrong direction it might not be all the people that you're working with it might be you something in you needs to change that relationship you're in your marriage right now it might just be that it's not him or her that needs to change it's not them that needs to learn something it's not them that needs to do better to step it up It might be it's you. It's it's time for you to change something. And listen, that's an ouch, and that hurts, but man, it's so good for us. And I'm thinking maybe this morning, as he invites us every week to make a change, as you were praying, Brad, during our prayer time together, that maybe he's inviting some of us to make a change this morning right up here at this altar. And we're at the same place Nebuchadnezzar is. We've got a choice. He's not going to smote you. You can decide what you want to do. And you can decide today to continue to try to be in control of things and to point fingers at everybody else and to try to do things your way and just continue in this cycle of frustration and fear and sleepless nights. Or you can say, Holy Spirit of the living God, please, as I come up here today, that's why I came. Touch me and change me. Show me what needs to be different in me, in my marriage, in my character, in my work. We must make some changes, which leads to number three. (laughs) I love this. There is a life-changing, eternity-shaping power that comes to each of us when we surrender to Jesus Christ. So number three is you and I actually gain control when we surrender. Such a paradox. So much power in that. That's what we were teaching the kids all week in VBS. It's not through our control or our power or our strength. It's through our weaknesses and our submission. And our total surrender to God that we get powerful. I mean, you think about Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, well, who had the power? Nebuchadnezzar did. He made the decrees. He made the laws. He decided who lived and died. What did Daniel do? He just got on his knees and prayed to the God of mercy. Well, which person changed the course of history? It was Daniel. He said, "Lord, you make the change. I surrendered to you. Now, listen. I'm not telling you this is easy, because it's not easy." Daniel's looking at possible execution, as in death, okay? But instead of trying to manipulate the circumstances and try to get things to go his direction and try to get things on the control side of the line, he surrendered himself to God and changed everything. This could be a life-changing moment for you this morning based on the second chapter of Daniel. I mean, you think about it. Where did Jesus get his power? Because i tell you, he, he, he had a lot of power. He, he fed 5,000 people. Plus women and children he walked on water he raised the dead he healed i don't know how many people where'd he get his power he didn't get it from his skill set he didn't get it from his status or his successes he got his power from total surrender to the god of the universe whom he called father think about it what was the most powerful moment in the life of jesus christ on this planet it wasn't the tomb it wasn't the cross it wasn't feeding 5,000 people or walking on the wall. The most powerful moment in the life of Jesus Christ on this planet happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when he gave up the temptation to control the future and said, Lord, I surrender completely to your will. Whatever you say, your will be done. What a life-changing, eternity-changing power that is yours. And it is yours today if you want it. I don't know if it's your marriage, your career, your character, your finances. But it's my guess there's something in your life right now that you're holding on to pretty tightly. And I'm telling you with as much truth as I can muster from the Word of God, if you just let go of that this morning and say, Lord, I surrender it to you. Make the changes in me that need to be changed. You can walk out of here different. Never be the same again. All because of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we come now to celebrate. Come and spend some honest time with the Holy Spirit this morning and ask him what is it that needs to be changed for the glory of Christ.